In the uh, 1984 uh, baseball movie, The Natural, which is set at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Robert Redford plays Roy Hobbs, a young and aspiring baseball player who has big dreams. He wants to be the greatest of all time. And at age 19, this character, Roy Hobbs, uh, casts aside his teenage sweetheart, Iris Gaines, played by Glenn Close, and moves to Chicago with a view to pursuing his dream of becoming the greatest baseball player of all time. And in the next uh, couple of decades, he has a somewhat tumultuous life. He goes through a lot of things, and his career is failing. But then at the ripe old age of 35, uh, he makes his big break in baseball, which apparently is quite old for baseball to make a break in at 35. And his career starts to pick up again. And he's doing really well. He's being really successful and enjoying all the trappings of life that come with that success as well. Women and money and booze and all those kind of things. And then his game starts to slump again as he starts to enjoy those things a little too much. His game starts to slump and it slumps and it slumps and it slumps and it goes down and down and down. And then at one game, He thinks, this is it, I'm almost done. And he looks out into the crowd at this game game of baseball that he's playing, and he sees a woman stand up in the crowd. And he can't see who she is because she's backlit by the afternoon sun. And unbeknownst to him, this woman is Iris, his teenage sweetheart. And upon seeing her, Hobbs hits a home run, and the game is a roaring success, and all of a sudden he's number one again. And then after another few uh, events, someone tries to poison him because they don't want him to be the best. And he's suffering from an old bullet wound when he got shot in the stomach. And he ends up hospitalized. Everything has fallen apart again. His career is over. The world that he has built for himself is ending. And Iris comes to visit him in hospital. And Roy, who thinks that he has made mistakes he will never stop paying for, asks Iris, why are you here? Why do you still love me despite my brokenness and my flaws? Why do you still love me despite the fact that the world that I have created for myself has shattered? To which she responds by saying, I think we have two lives. I think we have two lives. The one we learn from and the one we live after that. So this morning, I want to talk about how we live our lives caught in the tension between two worlds. On the one hand, we have the world that we are given. And on the other hand, we have the world that we make. The primary world and the secondary world. And that first world is primary. It's the one we're given. It's given effortlessly and unconditionally by God. That world is all gift. None of us asked to be given it. None of us asked to be born. We had life handed to us. The breath in our lungs, the pulse in our bodies, the blood in our veins, the thoughts in our minds, the desires of our hearts. None of us asked for any of these things. They were given to us. The last breath that you just took and the next breath that you just take are all gifts from God. These are signs of that first world, that primary world. We didn't ask to be given any of the things that we find beautiful in this world either. Perhaps it's the the sound of the wind in the trees, the sea lapping on the shore. And my favorite thing at this time of year, apart from the great sunsets, 
the dawn chorus. I don't mind getting woken up at five in the morning to hear all the birds singing. None of us asked for or earned that world. It was given to us. It is pure gift. None of us asked for it, and yet here we all are living by the sustenance and grace of God alone. We are not here by chance, as some would have us believe. We are here by the gift of God's grace. That primary world is founded on grace. The one that is gifted to us is also one that we have no control over. We have no iota of control in in that world. It is given to us by God, and it is lorded over by God, ruled by God. And that is the world that Paul is describing in this passage in Colossians. It's the world which is made through and for Jesus Christ. Paul's cosmic vision here in this kind of hymn in Colossians sees Christ as the beginning and the end. Jesus is the glue that holds everything together. He is both the seedbed from which everything grows. He's the one that tends and looks after the seedbed, and he's the one who harvests it. Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is also the goal to which everything that has ever been, everything that is now, and everything that ever shall be is oriented. It is all heading towards him. We don't know what the end of all things looks like, but we know who it looks like, and it looks like Jesus. But the secondary worlds are the ones that we make for ourselves. They're ours to own, ours to create, and ours to dominate, to do with as we will. These secondary worlds are the ones in which we make ourselves the lords and the rulers. As Vix mentioned last week, the secondary world is one in which dominion is exercised on an if-this-then-that premise. If-this-then-that. The then clause denotes some kind of future possibility or the fulfillment of some desire. And the if clause denotes some kind of action with which to achieve that future. So, if you do ABC, then you'll get XYZ. If you just think the right things, do the right things, say the right things, be the right things, then you'll be okay, you'll be blessed. If you just work really, really hard at school, then you might be able to get a well-paying job. And if you get a well-paying job, then you might be able to buy nice things. If you have nice things, then people might find you attractive or interesting. If people find you attractive or interesting, then you'll be accepted. If you're accepted and have all the money and the possessions in the world, then you'll be happy. If all this sounds too good to be true, it's because then it probably is. Because in this setup, that goal of desire, that then, is always shifting just out of reach. Nothing is ever quite good enough. And the Colossians were tempted to do exactly this. There were teachers among them saying several things, which you can't really put into one category, but they were saying several things. Uh, They were essentially saying, if you believe the right philosophy... If you observe the right rituals and the Sabbaths and the new moons, etc., etc., then God will accept you. Then you will be saved. Paul says later in chapter 2 
See to it that no one takes you captive through these philosophies, for they are nothing but empty deceit built upon human tradition. That is, built according to the worlds that we humans build, these secondary worlds. And we construct our whole idea of how the world works and how humans being work based on this contractual if-then binary because it means that we have control. We get to have control in this world. That's why parenting, I think about this quite a lot, so often uses a kind of if-then premise. So if I want my daughter, Alma, to eat her peas, I'll say to her, okay, if you eat your peas, then you can stay up late. Or I'll say to her, if you don't eat your peas, then you'll go to bed early. Either way, I'm attempting to gain control. I know what's best for her, and I want to control that to get what's best for her, which very rarely happens in my household, I have to say. The children very much rule the roost. And sometimes this filters down, trickles down into our understanding of God. So unlike the primary world, we make the God of our secondary worlds. We understand God to be a retributive and contractual judge rather than a loving redemptive father. We make ourselves the lords of these secondary worlds by creating laws which we can abide by and break as we will it, as we see fit. That's why we so often deny the reality of the gift of the primary world that God has given us in favor of the ones that we make, the ones that we control. As Duo Dickinson, who's an architect, said, the world we were given the world we do not, cannot control, is often invisible in our rush to define the world in which we live. The world we were given, the world we do not, cannot control, is often invisible in our rush to define the world in which we live. Jesus, Paul says, is the image, the icon of the invisible God. Some translate this word invisible to mean unseen, which I think is a better translation. God was unseen, not because he's in some sense invisible. After all, we read in the Old Testament that Moses saw God's back, whatever that means, and Jacob wrestled with God. No, this God was unseen, not because he was invisible, but because we were too busy gazing at our own navels to pay him any attention. This Navel-gazing, I think, is what St. Augustine had in mind when he uh, coined the term, uh, when he was thinking about the power of sin, and he coined the term, incovatus in se, the human heart curved in on itself. And a few centuries later, riffing on this, fit, on this theme, the 16th century German reformer Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Scripture describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical, but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all things, seeks only himself. This, again, was part of the temptation of the church in in Colossae, to use spiritual goods not as ends in themselves, but for their own means, and to the exclusion of others. Those that didn't fulfill the clause of if could not reap the benefits or be damned by the then 
clause. This is one of the disastrous effects of the worlds that we build. And we might like to think as Christians, as the church, that we are exempt from this, that because we are pious and we pray and we have right belief, we believe the right propositions about God and we pray and we read the Bible and we worship and we fast and we tithe and we do all the right things, we somehow aren't in that category in the same way. But we are just as susceptible to using all of our Christian religious ideals and activities as opportunities for self-congratulation and self-promotion. Or we weaponize them to demonize others. We are not exempt. Paul writes in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think whenever you're reading Paul, it's always beneficial to pay attention to the word all because he uses it to great effect. Let's not think for a moment that because we're Christians, we can somehow measure the distances that we fall short as somehow being that bit closer to God than others. I think the recent news about certain prominent uh, evangelical Christian celebrities is a good enough example of that. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all that said, these secondary worlds are capable of really good things because God is at work even in them. We can create beautiful things through art and poetry and music. And we do so by tapping into the reality of that primary world, the one that is given to us. But there are two ever-present realities that perpetually thwart these secondary worlds, the worlds that we build for ourselves, that we make ourselves lords of. The first is failure. Failure. No one has ever mastered their own destiny. People always fail. No one ever succeeds. The goal is always just out of reach. That bit more money, that job promotion, that bit of knowledge, that bit of education, it's always just out of reach. Nothing is ever good enough. We always fail. The worlds that we build always fracture. They always fall. No amount of money or stuff or knowledge or wisdom or faith can negate the fact that we always fail. How do I know we always fail? Because of the second ever-present reality, which is death. We might live longer now than we used to, but we all die. None of us can escape it. And that's the crux of the problem. The worlds that we build are worlds made in our own image, not in God's, which is an image which is plagued by sin, by evil. It's subject to corruption and ultimately death. And that is good news. That's really good news. Because the worlds that we build inevitably fail. But God's world, God's kingdom, always prevails. It always wins. I think Paul hits on the gospel message in two parts here. The first part, Paul writes, I think at verses 19 and 20, he writes, For in him... 
All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. The good news is, is that God will not leave us alone. He won't leave us to our own ends. God will leave no stone unturned. The good news is that it pleases God to reconcile to himself all things. There is nothing that will not be reconciled. There is nothing that is too far out of God's reach for him to transform and touch and redeem. There is no wrong that will not be righted. The good news is that God will not let us succumb to our own destructive desires, our purposes and plans, which are doomed to fail. The good news is that where our kingdoms tumble into the inevitability of death, God's kingdom rises from the tomb. The good news is, is the love of God has triumphed. And the second part, the good news that Paul is drumming home in this passage when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the one through whom all things were made, the one for whom all things were made, and the one in whom all things hold together. This Jesus who loves you enough to die for you and to rise for you. This Jesus is ever present to us. Always present to us. After all, he's the, the Lord of the cosmos. The Lord of creation. He's not subject to the laws that we try and put on him. The conditions we try and put on him. He's not limited by time or by space. And that means that he is also present in every future possibility. Whatever lies ahead of us, whether it be tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year or the next decade, whatever lies ahead of us, no matter how dark or how great it might seem, Jesus is already there waiting to meet you, waiting to embrace you in whatever uncertain future you might have. And as if that wasn't good enough, this Lord Jesus who wants to be found in every future, Jesus who is Lord of the cosmos, Lord of time, is also present in every single detail of your past. It's retroactive grace. He is at work in our history. He is at work in those things that we might have experienced that we think can never be overcome, can never be reconciled, can never be redeemed. Jesus is present even there, curing our hurts, healing our pain. James K. Smith, who's a, a Christian philosopher, writes this at the end of his book, How to Inhabit Time. He says, if God's redemption gathers up the broken fragments of our histories into a mosaic of new life. It seems like those histories go to heaven with us too. We will arrive in the kingdom of God carrying our stories. Indeed, if Christ's resurrection is the first fruits, we will arrive at the marriage supper of the Lamb with our scars. It's hard not to imagine someone at that banquet of joy turning to ask, tell me about that scar. And somehow, in ways that are unthinkable to me now, I will be able to revisit my history without pain 
or trauma, not because the memory card of my mind has been erased, but because now I can see only the unique mosaic that is redeemed, rescued me, the tapestry that is us. So Jesus is there waiting to meet you in the future. He's already at work in your past, redeeming it, transforming it. And the good news is that Jesus is available to us right here, right now, through the cross, by the power of the Holy Spirit.